Phil Howard is the founder and CEO of Common Good, a nonpartisan reform group that aims to restore common sense to the way our government writes and implements laws and regulations. He is a noted commentator on the effects of law and bureaucracy on human behavior. He recently wrote an op-ed calling for an independent bipartisan commission tasked with making tough decisions on issues like privacy and the pace of economic reopening amid the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's listen in. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and uh, I want to welcome you to uh, this afternoon's session. We're grateful to have uh, Phil Howard with us today. Uh, Phil is one of America's leading authorities on government simplification, streamlining regulations, and legal reform. In 2002, Phil formed Common Good, which is a nonpartisan national coalition dedicated to restoring common sense to American government. He's also the author of the bestsellers, The Death of Common Sense and the Collapse of the Common Good. Phil recently authored an op-ed in The Hill, which is which called for an independent recovery commission. So uh, uh, following his remarks, uh, what we'd like to do is if you go to, at the bottom of your screen, to participants, at the bottom of participants, it allows you to raise your hand. So if you raise your hand, we'll uh, call, call on you for questions. So uh, with that, let me turn it over to my friend, Phil Howard. Uh, thank you, Andrew. Nice to be with you all. I'm a big uh, fan of no labels. I, uh, I was hanging around at the periphery uh, when no labels was founded years ago. And uh, I don't think there's ever been a reform no labels has uh, proposed that I didn't agree wholeheartedly with. So uh, it's, it's nice to be with you. Um, I guess in the way of introductory remarks, uh, I would just say that the, the, the COVID-19 uh, crisis uh, cast a harsh light on, on the operating systems of modern government that, um, you know, a system that, that requires uh, in an effort to avoid mistakes, every little decision to pass through the eye of the Washington needle, you know, when they discovered someone with the virus in Seattle, the public health researchers wanted to immediately test others as part of a sample that was ongoing. And they already had collected swabs from dozens of people, but they weren't allowed to test them because uh, the lab hadn't been approved, even though it was approved for this other test. And because um, the, the uh, methodology for the test hadn't yet been approved by by the Centers for Disease Control, and because the people who had agreed to be part of the study, the study flu, hadn't specifically agreed to be part of a study that studied COVID-19. You know, all these sort of uh, relatively minor sort of legal objections caused almost a month to go by before people started reacting to the to the COVID-19. So at that point, it spread all over the country. Uh, and then when it spread all over the country, the um, uh, governors and the White House quickly realized that you couldn't possibly do what was needed without throwing away the rule books. So all of a sudden, all these things that would otherwise be illegal, like telemedicine and uh, letting people pra practice across state lines and 
expanding facilities without pre-approvals and lots of other things. So the, the rule books got thrown to the winds because you couldn't actually um, do what was needed and comply with this these dense dense requirements of, of, of bureaucracy. So so what's needed, I think, well, what's needed immediately, um, aside from getting testing going and a lot of other problems with this crisis, is um, is an authority mechanism that won't prevent the country from getting back up and running. So for example, if you need to have an inspection of each restaurant before it can reopen, it'll be six months because all the inspectors will be will be uh, bogged down, you know, in the you know with the backlog. So there needs to be some sort of authority to continue to cut through the red tape in order to get the economy up and running. And then more broadly, you know, I think that we need, and Andrew Cuomo today or yesterday called for this, we, we need to use this crisis as a, um, um, as a sort of a signal that we need to reinvent, not what government does, but how it does it. You know, we need to upgrade the operating system of modern government so that it can actually respond to crises and actually do the job without shackling people with unnecessary um, legal requirements. And I think I think there's going to be a possibility, at least, of a of an awakening uh, to. Um, to the flaws of our governing structure, which has nothing to do with what either party is talking about, it has more to do with, with what, what no labels have been talking about, which is, you know, the, the problem with modern government can't be solved by deregulation. I mean, we've, the COVID-19 crisis proves that we need government oversight, we need government protection. Um, uh, what's needed is to make government effective and, these legacy bureaucracies that have basically, no one really designed them. They just sort of, the rules and regulations just accumulated over the last 50 years don't allow government to be effective. So, so Phil, what, what is the mechanism that gets us into a, uh, a, a reform mode? Well, I think, um, I think different things could happen. Um, I mean, one of the things that we're doing at Common Good that I've talked to you about, Andrew, and talked to Nancy about, is um, we're going to launch a, um, an advocacy campaign. We're calling it the Campaign for Common Sense, but starts off with a petition calling for spring cleaning commissions, not to deregulate, but to re-regulate, you know, to give an independent commission or commissions uh, the chance to go in and sort of clean out unnecessary red tape. Um, and so building a co coalition of, of people who want to see government work better, like No Labels, um, Mercatus came up with a report um, in the last week calling, it's called, they call it the Fresh Start Report, calling for a recovery authority. Um, uh, again, you've got governors like Andrew Cuomo calling to reimagine it. So I think we sort of need to come together Behind a, um, uh, behind a nonpartisan 
approach to, um, to coming up with more, designing more effective structures. Don't, don't things usually fall apart with all the government restructuring the second it hits Congress and uh, all the committee chairs look and figure out what they're losing? <laughs> yes, and, and I think it's really important. Uh, this is a really important point. I think reforms are really hard. Ref and the No Labels has found this. You can get reforms, but it requires a lot of work. But what the political scientists say is that um, change generally happens in big gulps. So you can build up pressure by advocating for a lot of reforms, but ultimately what changes is when people, there's a crisis or pressures build in other ways, so there's a change in the frame of reference. And so the last time that happened is that this country was the 1960s, you know, with the rights revolution and we had environmentalists and civil rights activists and others all coming together behind overhauling the system. The time before was the 1930s when we had the Great Depression and came up with the idea of social safety net. Time before was the progressive era when finally laissez-faire, you know, the philosophy of laissez-faire got, got overthrown and people finally recognized that we needed government oversight to prevent, you know, rapacious corporate factory owners from abusing child labor and the like. Um, so, uh, in those periods, Congress doesn't have a chance. Congress just has to go where the tide is going. But if you don't have an overwhelming public demand for change, then you're right. Congress, you know, every, look at Washington. Washington is, whatever it is, 10,000 special interest groups all dedicated to the status quo, right? So they get in the way of most reforms. Well, they say, why waste a good crisis? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and I think this crisis really, you know, it's interesting, the survey, uh, recent surveys have shown unprecedented demand on the order of two thirds of American voters for quote, very major reform of Washington. You know, Paul Light is, uh, you know, the NYU political scientist has done a bunch of these studies. Um, but no one's really presented them the public with a coherent vision of what that would look like. And so the, the, the public who wants very major reform is fragmented across Bernie Sanders supporters and Donald Trump supporters and you know people who are sort of imagining some idea of what would be better without any coherent idea about how schools might work better or how healthcare might be less expensive and therefore you know, more available such, um, uh, and, uh, you know, and, and, and we think, I think, I write books about it, that, that, um, th that there is a way of bringing these, this drive for reform together, and it's behind the idea of simpler systems that are activated by humans taking responsibility instead of thousand-page rule books and, you know, years-long procedures and stuff. Uh, Joel, Joel Myers, <clears throat> yeah, introduce hi, yourself you. and where you're from, please. Yeah, I'm a founder and CEO of Accuator, and I'm at State College, Pennsylvania. <clears throat> um, 
I think the world is changing so rapidly that the events that are unfolding <clears throat> will greatly change what uh, people believe they want. <clears throat> uh, and uh, so any assessment we make now is really looking in the rear view window. Um, I mean, there's such dramatic <clears throat> changes occurring. Already there was imbalance in markets and such before this crisis hit. I mean, look at today. The price of spot oil went to minus $37. <laughs> that means that they would give you the oil and pay you $37 a barrel to take it because people had to deliver it and they had no place to put it. So they had to find somebody. So there are unheard of disruptions. And there's no question that this is going to exacerbate uh, the uh, inequality of wealth uh, across our society and across the world. Uh, and uh, I worry about <clears throat> what the result's going to be. I mean, Russia which, and Saudi Arabia, which depend on oil, both being able to sell it and get a decent price for it, can't do either. So those countries may be effectively bankrupt very soon unless things change. And so there are huge things occurring right now that are going to impact all of us. <clears throat> I don't think any of us know what they're going to be, but I think it behooves us to try and focus on find some of the very basics that I we can probably figure out. One is there's going to be a lot less wealth. Number two is the inequality of wealth is going to be greater. Number three is many of the jobs that were wiped out are not going to come back anytime soon, and so on and so forth. And this is going to greatly disrupt the political landscape of this country. And it's at a time when we have tremendous debt. And uh, debt does matter in the end. That's why the price of gold's gone up and you haven't seen anything yet, in my opinion. And you, you're talking about 24 trillion in debt before you started this. You're talking about 30 trillion in debt within 24 months. And uh, probably by the end of the decade, you'll have 40 trillion or more in debt. The GDP has been decimated, so maybe it'll come back to 24, 25 million, a trillion by the end of the by the end of the decade. That's a ratio of uh, 1.5 or more to one. Um, I, I, you know, I, I see a lot of problems. We were <laughs> we were going to be panicked when we got to one to one, and we we didn't even notice that. Bill, go ahead. Yeah, I, you know, I would say, you know, there some of those. I mean, I agree with all that. I mean. Traditionally, uh, you know, regimes um, try to try to inflate their way out of crises, and I think that you know what what Joel's talking about is is a version of that, among other things. Um, and they're going to inflate their way in in part to make up for some of some of the inequality in the income stagnation and have a redistribution that way, but. But there's also a high level of frustration by Americans at, at Big Brother, at the ineffectiveness of schools, at the, the fact that people don't feel they have ownership of choices in their local communities, of uh, the fact that it, you have to go to 11 different agencies to open a restaurant, you know, in New York. Uh, um, you know, the fact that the work rules of the MTA, the least legacy work rules, basically mean that we get about 25 cents on the dollar work. There are all these structures in place, uh, these legacy bureaucracies that are wasteful and paralytic and frustrating. 
And one thing that we conceivably could do, we can't solve everything Joel talked about or we can't figure it out, is that we can focus on getting rid of what we know is stupid and replacing it with something that has a chance of working. And um, so that's what, you know, that's what, uh, you know, we're focusing on. I've, I'm sort of putting together a group of leading citizen types um, behind this, you know, spring cleaning commissions idea for government. And uh, it's a pretty good group. I'd, I'd love for some of you to sign on, but I've got, you know, Al Simpson and Mitch Daniels and Bill Bradley and, you know, a bunch of other former governors and senators and university presidents and experts in every area, leading political scientists and regulatory experts on the right and the left. There's there's a lot of interest in in overhauling the system, and that's something that I think that that right-minded people can get together behind. Michael Small. Yeah. Hey, Phil, um, Michael Small from Chicago and Denver these days. Um, something to re uh, react to, and I understand kind of like cleaning out the closet of government and trying to make it more efficient, but right. if you think back to the 60s when we wanted to go to the moon, no one could imagine any institution other than our government getting us there. If we're trying to get to Mars now, no one could imagine our government doing, and we turned. <laughs> That's right. And SpaceX has to do it for us. Yeah, Elon Musk is going to try yeah, and do yeah, it. Yeah, High tech yeah. is going to do it for us. And, and the best and the brightest used to go to work for government to try and solve problems like that. Now, in general, the best and the brightest go anywhere um, but to government to try and solve problems like that. Isn't there something more fundamental and yeah. the role of government yeah. really had to step up to. Yeah, it's really important. Your point's really important. And uh, I had a book come out last year called uh, Try Common Sense, what I encourage you each to buy 100 copies of. Um, it's, um, but, but basically, uh, the narrative is that after the 1960s, because we were so traumatized by the bad values that we woke up to that really were bad, racism, pollution, all that kind of stuff. We changed, the op we changed our values, which was good, but we changed the operating system of government explicitly to avoid human choice. We didn't have thousand page rule books before. Now the rule books not only tell you what to do, have a safe workplace and principles, they tell you exactly how to do it. The, the, the light socket must be exactly three inches away from the sink, that sort of thing. Um, and, and elaborate procedures before anyone, uh, any public health researcher could go test something to make sure they didn't make a mistake. And the problem with this system is it's paralytic. It's a version of central planning. And uh, Cass Sunstein and I have this disagreement. It's a Harvard Law professor who was regulatory czar under Obama, a brilliant guy. And in general, he and I are, you know, agree in this, have the same sort of philosophical view about how governments would work, except that he thinks that this is a matter of degree. And he wrote a column last week for Bloomberg saying that we need to clear out the regulatory sludge, too many forms, that sort of stuff. I don't think it's a matter of degree. I would go with you. It's a matter of philosophy. 
we tried to create a government better than people. And we've ended up in the system where, no, where basically nobody's in charge. Who's responsible for the failure of schools? Nobody. Who's responsible for the excess healthcare costs? Nobody. Who's responsible for anything? Nobody. Because we've created this system where, where the system tells you what to do and people can't actually roll up their sleeves and, and make anything work. And I think we have to challenge that frame of reference and replace, I don't think you can repair the system. You have to replace it with something that actually gives, that honors human agency. You know, that honors the ability of people to do things. I think it's really, and that's what this book I wrote, Try Common Sense, is about. And that's sort of what this advocacy campaign that we're uh, going to launch in a month or so um, is, is aimed at provoking first a national debate on. My question had to do with uh, whether or not there's a consensus among, we've got 16 people here, whether there's a perception that we're heading into a, a deep recession or whether or not we're going to actually tip over into the reset or a global depression in as much as that affects uh, policy initiatives. I'm trying to get a, a general idea by a rough poll as to how people think. I think you, you've got 109 people on the call here and you probably uh, have 109 different feelings, but nobody is, uh, nobody is very optimistic right now. I, I would hazard a guess. Well, a I, question, quick question to um, uh, uh, Mr. Howard. Uh, assuming that state and local governments in the next 90 days, particularly the local governments are broke. Uh, how uh, do you see an initiative uh, gaining traction when all of the local government budgets are going to be drastically cut? Well, I think, uh, uh, you know, economic duress, uh, you know, unless the federal government just prints money and bails everybody out, which is what they did in 2009, you know, economic economic duress can can be a um, um, a great stimulus to get rid of uh, inefficient work rules and to uh, and and to get rid of uh, you know unnecessary red tape and begin to prioritize you know what we really need government to do and and what we no longer need. You know, almost half the states now have more non-instructional personnel than teachers. So think about that. What are they doing? They're filling out forms. They're keeping track of things. You know, the system needs to get rebooted. It's just the wrong use of resources. John Muse, uh, we got peanuts there? <clears throat> yeah, I was going to say I, to the question of depression, I think there's a real, real chance of depression. If we don't get open, I mean, we got major industries under duress. If we don't get this economy reopened by the fall, I think we tip over into a depressive era. And then you got the people below the median income level uh, out of money, and we could have a lot of social unrest. I'm concerned. I'm very concerned. We've got uh, Melvin Gray and then uh, Joel Myers. Melvin? I guess I have to unmute myself. I think I did that. You, you did that. 
So the philosophy of um, reducing the power of human agency um, and replacing a bureaucracy um, is very attractive uh, thought uh, channel of thought. Um, the dilemma that it seems to me is involved in that, and I'd like to, to, to you know, hear your thinking about it, is uh, in my mind a couple of things. Uh, how do we check power? And how do we preserve this uh, democratic notion of uh, federalism that has pervaded our system since the founding fathers? Uh, those, those are two things that seem to me to be a part of that equation, uh, important parts of that equation. How, how, do you, how do you reconcile those? Yeah, really important questions. Well, first of all, how do you check power? Um, uh, uh, I've written a lot about this. The, um, uh, you don't, you, no one trusts anybody. I don't trust anybody except for you, but, but I don't trust anyone. Uh, but what you have to do is you have to trust the system. And the system has to have clear lines, not only of responsibility, but also of accountability. And one of the things that's been lost as part of this post-60s wave it's very hard to hold anybody accountable. You can't get rid of a bad teacher. You, you know, you can't, you can't fire an employee, you know, if they claim that somehow you're unfair. So it's really vital for a healthy institution, both to make everybody feel like they're all in it together. And also when there is a, an abuse or somebody who can't do the job to be able to, to, to get rid of those people. I mean, the, the constitution, doesn't doesn't tell us what unreasonable searches and seizures are or freedom of speech is, you know. It, it, but those those few words have been effective as interpreted by officials and judges to to protect our freedoms. So so we have to trust a system um, that includes accountability as well as responsibility. Um, the second question is. Is what? Federalism. Oh, federalism. Oh, really important question. You know, one of the problems with a, um, with a system of regulatory micromanagement, with thousand page rule books and reports required by the federal education agency and all that kind of stuff, is it disempowers people in localities. Is it, you know, they're, they're, they're tied in knots by all the requirements of complying with all these rules. One of the advantages of a principles-based system of government and goals-based is it lets people in localities do things in their own way, not whatever they want to do. They can't teach creationism necessarily, but they can. But they can run, um, you know, they can run their schools in their own way as long as they meet whatever the basic, you know, standards are for for quality for that particular group. And it's really important to give back to people a sense of ownership of local services, you know, to, so that democracy is important and people and people feeling part of a community is important. And it doesn't require letting them, and that doesn't require, quote, federalism in the starkest conservative sense of do whatever you want, but it does require uh, a sense of agency of letting people do things in their own ways. And a simplified system 
does that automatically by leaving implementation to the judgment of the people on the ground. So that the people in, in Marin County, which it seems to be where you're from, uh, the, the people in Marin County can do things differently than the people in Mount Sterling, Kentucky, which is where I'm from. Uh, Joel Myers. It'd be uh, controversial or uh, I don't wanna be uh, uh, disrespectful, but uh, this is a theoretical conversation that uh, I don't think is gonna have a lot of relevance. The fact is that the government does keep getting bigger and it does keep having more control until there's a revolution and it has to start over. And uh, what's going on now sows the, seed, sows the seeds of that kind of thing. Reform, uh, it, it, things of the bureaucracy has gotten so big and so much control and, and, and so on, and it works until it doesn't. And uh, you're just talking about, I believe, symptoms of the problem, but there's so many and there's so, I, I don't see much progress. I mean, people, some of the things you're talking about, you know, they're problems, but we've been talking about them for decades and they just seem to get worse. There's yeah. very few, I see very little evidence of real progress in reforming some of these systems, whether it's about the schools or whether it's about the military industrial complex or whether it's about what I call the government hospital medical complex, uh, all kinds of crony capitalism that is a, uh, hurts the system, is a uh, uh, really fungus on the system and, and takes from all of us. Right, well, I think I said about five minutes ago that reforms never happen, that it only happens in revolutions. So I think you just repeated what I said. Uh, I don't think I'm just talking about symptoms. I'm talking about a, a core frame of reference of the design of this government, which doesn't let humans take responsibility. That's a philosophical thing. It's not a symptom. The symptom is that half the states have more non-instructional personnel. The, the, why do they have? Because we don't let humans make decisions. We make them comply with forms and forms and, and, and rule books. So, so I don't think we're disagreeing about that. Um, uh, I think ideas matter. Um, the campaign that we're organizing, its purpose is to raise the profile of the need to overhaul the entire system so that the candidates can talk about it. If we don't raise it and build public support and public demand for an idea of practical systems that don't suffer the things we've been discussing, then the candidates won't talk about it. We have advisors, close advisors to both candidates who are eager to push this on their agenda. And um, so we think we can do that. And if they talk about it, I think that increases the chances that maybe notwithstanding all the special interest groups and the corporate industrial complex and all that, all of which I agree with, maybe with enough outside pressure and I don't know if it's a depression or not, you know, things um, can change, but, um, but, but the ways that this is executed are not abstract. Um, we have a proposal of three pages to streamline infrastructure permitting, which the um, Trump administration just, just put forth in regs. They don't, they go about half, 
wave was needed. It's really quite complex. It means quite simple. It, it creates clear lines of authority to make decisions. And unless you have those authority, how much environmental review needed, who, is there anybody with the job of resolving the disagreement between fish and wildlife and the Corps of Engineers or whatever, then the permitting process goes on for a decade. So it's actually, so these things get implemented in quite concrete ways. Uh, but the secret, in my view, is to restore the authority at every level of responsibility to make decisions and then a way of holding those people accountable. Quick question for Mr. Howard, and I think you started to get into the answer as I was listening to the last question. It strikes me that with everybody feeling that potentially a, uh, certainly a deep recession, if not a depression is imminent, and uh, potentially as well, we could have a second wave of virus in the fall. It doesn't sound like we've got any clear-cut solutions yet. It feels like this, this movement towards uh, streamlining regulation, making government more effective has to happen quickly. And I'm having trouble understanding how it can be other than a theoretical uh, discussion in the absence of a very concerted uh, political willpower coming together. And in the two-party system we have right now, how do people, have you started to evolve a thought on how people fund and develop this political willpower? Um, obviously, this group is one group that's moving in that direction. It sounds like you've got a paper setting out some other ideas. But is it realistic to think this is going to happen within the next few years? Forget about the next political cycle. Um, well, I mean, we're talking to several governors right now about creating recovery authorities that would have where the legislatures are going to authorize um, a recovery authority to cut red tape for, for the recovery of, you know, businesses to get them back up and running. Um, um, so, so there are states already uh, planning to create a mechanism to, um, um, to avoid, you know, the kind of red tape snafus that will be, that will be happen when, when, even when schools try to reopen. You know, can you imagine the lawsuits and people claiming their rights are violated because their child isn't getting what they thought they were entitled to and stuff? You know, the law is going to have to change to allow um, allow things to get reworked. So we're working with several governors um, right now, and and we've made a proposal to uh, you know a federal proposal and. Uh, Trump hasn't picked up on it yet. I'm talking with a senator tomorrow about maybe uh, uh, legislation, you know, in Congress to create a kind of a, a base closing type commission to do this. Thank you. Yeah, first of all, your uh, comments have been great, Mr. Howard. I, uh, first of all, I'm bullish. I think we're going to get through this. I've gone through this in the 60s, in 1974, 1987, and we will find a way through it. Uh, I love your comments about the micromanagement and the fact that that has gone totally overboard. Uh, with There are so many different levels of government. There's no question about that, and that has to be streamlined. It reminds me very well of when I was in Army, Army ROTC, believe it or not, in the late 50s, and the major there made one comment, and his comment was, use the frame KISS, K-I-S-S, -S, which means keep it simple, stupid. 
And that, in effect, is, I think, where we have to go and what you're relating to, because unless we put it in the hands of people and stop these thousand page documents, we're not going to get any place. You know, it's, uh, I'm glad you raised that. Thank you. The, 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 there's a lot of organizational theory on this that, that people haven't, in my view, given sufficient uh, attention to. There are some areas where a tiny mistake can result in a tragedy where you want to have detailed checklists and the like. But for anything that involves trade-offs, including trade-offs of time and resources, you really have to be able to be agile and adaptive on the spot, whether it's a teacher running a classroom or, or you know, trying to figure out supply difficulties for medical supply. You're, you're, and, and we've created a system that's the opposite of that. So it's really designed for failure. And these, uh, these organizational psychologists have joined our coalition because their studies show that, um, that the way the human brain works is that the working memory, the conscious part of the brain, is, uh, can only retain six or seven things. And if you give it something really complicated, you actually freeze it. So you make people go brain dead. You know, all they do is think about whatever they can retain in their brain. And so we've created this lousy system where people act like they're brain dead because they're trying to keep all this stuff straight instead of focusing on whatever the goal is. Well, I'm going to ask you to tell uh, the story of the, of the Bayonne Bridge. Oh, yeah, the, okay. <laughs> so this it, is, it, it shows the government can work if it puts its mind to doing it. Yeah, that's right. So the, the, um, uh, a few years ago, uh, the, uh, the Bayonne Bridge uh, goes over the Kilvan Cull, which is how ships get into Newark Harbor. And, um, and, it, and it was built in 1931. It was a big single arch bridge, a beautiful bridge. And, um, and the roadway is too low for the new generation of post-Panamax ships. So they, they set out to um, figure out what to do about this. And they thought they were either going to have to either build a new bridge at a cost of about $4 billion or a tunnel and at a cost of about $4 billion. And this um, uh, lifetime Port Authority employee named Joanne Papa Georges was the project manager. And she said, uh, has anybody looked into whether you could just raise the roadway of the existing bridge inside the arch? They said, well, it's 80 years old. I don't know. Blah, blah, blah. I said, well, just go look at it. And a month later, they came back and said, yes, well, it turns out we can, <laughs> you know, and, and that will cost about a billion dollars while keeping it open, you know, with two lanes open, and two lanes closed, whatever. Um, so here you had this project, which had all kinds of advantages It saved $3 billion, and it had no environmental impact because you're using the same foundations, you know, of the existing bridge. So uh, it, little disruption of the uh, adjoining communities and such. <laughs> okay. It took them a 20,000 page environmental assessment in five years before they got approval to do that. Think about that. This is a project with no environmental impact or virtually no environmental impact. <laughs> and what did it take, and, 27 agencies to approve it? If, uh, more than that. Uh, there were 49 different um, permits required from, yeah, 20-some different agencies. And it, it was 
it was just, and they, they eventually got it done and they, and, and they did the project, but, but, but that's absurd. I mean, you've got to distinguish between, between a project that's going through a, you know, a national, national park or something where there are lots of environmental consequences and just raising the roadway of an existing bridge. But we have this legal structure that does, doesn't let anybody make those judgments. Last question, Bill Conkler. Thanks, Andrew. This has been a, uh, a fascinating uh, discussion. Um, as, as I've, prior to this crisis, I, I've like Mike Small live in Illinois and Illinois is a bankrupt state and has been failing the citizens for decades. And it's just, it seems like we're at a moment where we're at a tipping point. Um, right. And, but it's also an opportunity. The, the, the most leaders in Chicago are very civic minded and they've come up with a, a restructuring plan which government has is, is refused to embrace. And the reason I bring this up is we are at a moment where we could embrace that restructuring plan. And I don't, I don't think it just applies to Illinois. I would get, gather that more than half the states in the union are in a similar similar situation where various basic human services are deteriorating in order to serve the political class and provide pensions that nobody in the private sector would have ever come up with. So I'd just like to hear your thoughts on that. Right, I, I forget the number of, of uh, retired public employees in Illinois who are pensions of more than $200,000 a year uh, but it's, I think it's in the hundreds. The, um, it's in the thousands. I sit on a group called the Civic Federation, which deals with this. Um, the people um, who are feeding at the trough, um, is his name Madigan, the guy who's run the state legislature? Yeah, he's, he's the poster boy of corruption yeah. for the country. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the people who are feeding at the trough will not voluntarily... Uh, you know, re relinquish their uh, their spot there. So, one of the things I suggested in Try Common Sense, this new book, is um, is that the federal government use its um, funding power to condition support on um, um, you know commercially reasonable or reasonable practices, and in the states and. Um, so using leverage, you know, using the leverage of money uh, and, the, and the threat of bankruptcy. I also think that, that states uh, should be allowed, you know, that currently they're not allowed to go bankrupt. Um, uh, I think they should be allowed to go bankrupt because until there's that threat, uh, the, the Madigans of the world have nothing to lose. Yeah. You know, they just continue to, to, to siphon money off from everyone else till the, I don't know what happens. Illinois sinks into Lake Michigan or something. Thank you. Well, Phil, th thank you very much. Uh, you've, you've raised a lot of questions, given us a few possibilities for answers. But um, uh, thank you all for attending tonight. And uh, uh, No Labels does this every, uh, every evening because we want to keep as much information out there in front of the public. and. Uh, let you know what's uh, what's happening in the world beyond uh, beyond what's happening currently. So, 
Thank you all, and uh, we'll see you all tomorrow. Phil Howard argues that the spread of COVID-19 could have been prevented, or at least curbed, had regulations not hindered necessary research and precautions. He also believes America desperately needs an independent, bipartisan commission to cut needless red tape and plot a common-sense path to reopening and recovery. We need to use this moment, he explains, to reinvent how the government operates and how it responds to crises. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to stop the virus, save lives, and get Americans back to work. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.